a surprising response to a hesitant faith. Number nine in the Judges series. This is an exposition of Judges chapter nine. This message by Pastor Rod Harris was delivered at Trinity Baptist Church on Sunday morning, June the 13th, 2021. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of worship, for the opportunity to gather together in your name, to sing your praise, to hear your word. And Father, it is the desire, the longing of our heart that we might see you. Open the eyes of our heart to see you in the glory of your person in the scripture today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a good question. Are leaders born or made? Are heroes destined or developed? Some people seem to just be born for destiny. You look at certain people and you say, that guy's just a natural born leader. You look at other people and go, how in the world did that guy ever make it? How, did, how in the world did he get where he is? Life is complicated. Life is complex. History is complicated. History is rarely neatly packaged. Lines are seldom clearly drawn with, with clear and great distinction that everyone can see. Fiction can be black and white, but real life is more gray. It's complicated. It's complex. By that I mean things get messy. There are mixed motives, and things are not always what they seem. I'm not saying that there's some confusion between what is right and wrong. I don't mean that there's question about good and evil. I mean in a fallen world, life is complicated. Because in a fallen world, men who are totally, radically depraved, that means rotten from the core of their being, are capable of love and kindness. And people who are born of God, who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, who are truly saved, often struggle with sin. So that even the Apostle Paul said, you know, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I keep doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Life in the real world it's complicated. That's one of the things I appreciate about the scripture and its presentation to us. Because the, the scripture is brutally honest about the human story. The heroes of the faith are presented as men and women of flesh and bone. Fallen sons and daughters of Adam that struggle. Nothing is sugar-coated. And that's why I appreciate it. Because it tells me there's hope. There's hope for me. There's hope for those of us who struggle 
And nowhere is this any clearer than in the book of Judges. And we have a wonderful example of this in our text this morning, found in Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, we're going to begin looking at the story of Gideon. We're in that period of the Dark Ages in Israel's history. That period where there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's early in the national life of the people. They're taking the first struggling steps as a nation. And we've seen the downward spiral. We've noticed that there's that time when they fall away from God and they turn from Him and turn to these other gods. And as a result of that, God brings a judgment on the people through an oppressor. And, and then the people finally get so miserable, they cry out to God. And then God graciously raises up a judge, a savior, a deliverer who brings peace and there's, there's rest in the land, but only for a time. And then the cycle is repeated. The spiral continues as they continue to move away from God. Throughout the dark, troubling stories, the grace and the mercy of God take center stage. The book of Judges is a gospel book. Because throughout the book, there's a thundering message. And the message is, it is God who saves. It is God who delivers. It is God who is merciful to sinners. And we're often surprised by the way God responds to people in the book. And we're surprised by the people that God uses. Gideon is one of those surprises. His story is found in Judges 6, 7, and 8. We're going to focus today on chapter 6. His call as a savior, his call as a deliverer, and then the things leading up to that battle where he's going to bring deliverance. The opening verses, the narrator sets the stage for us. So let's look beginning in verse 1, Judges chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. Because of meeting the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people from the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all these wonderful deeds that our fathers recount to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my, plan, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. He said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring to you my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that this was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, the second bull seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that is at your father, that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood from the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it at day, during the day, he did it. At night, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah pole was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerub Baal. That is, let Baal contend against him. 
because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Nephtali and they all went out to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece. He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just one more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Now, Gideon doesn't exactly come across as a fervent, eager warrior. At best, he's hesitant. I certainly understand his desire for a sign. If the, Lord, if the angel of the Lord came to me and, and gave me this kind of announcement, I'd want some kind of sign too. So I, I get that. I understand his desire for a sign. I understand his hesitancy at the beginning. But honestly, by the time we get to the fleece, it's... Kind of funny. It would be laughable, but it really isn't funny. I mean, he asked for a second sign, and you go, well, that's pushing it. But okay, I, I'm going to put out this fleece, and, and, and I want it in the morning, I want the fleece to be soaking wet, but the ground all around it dry. And so it happens, and then he said, oh, wait a minute. Let's do it again, but this time let's go the other way around. I read one commentator that said, Gideon realized his mistake with the first miracle. Gideon thought, it's wool. Wool's going to draw water and moisture. So I don't know what I was thinking. Okay, let's do this again the other way. That would really be miraculous. Well, that is a logical explanation for why he would turn around needing another miracle. But my problem is, even if that's the case, Gideon looks like he's incompetent. But the point isn't Gideon. The point isn't even his hesitancy or his reluctance to be used of God. The point is the grace of God and the mercy of God and the way he responded to this less than enthusiastic faith. The surprising way that our God dealt with this reluctance to believe. In fact, as we work our way through the passage, here's what I want us to discover. The story of Gideon, the hesitant judge, highlights our God's surprising response to a hesitant, halting faith. Now that ought to be an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me. It ought to be an encouragement to all the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. There's hope for us. 
There's hope for us in our less than stellar faith. There's hope for those of us who struggle to believe, who struggle to live out consistently the call of God, who, who know what God says, who understands what God wants. It's difficult sometimes to believe. It's difficult sometimes to live out. There's encouragement for us. Three things I want to point out. First of all, I want us to see that the Lord graciously rebukes a rebellious faith. We find a familiar phrase in the opening, opening lines of the chapter. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, it's important to understand the context. So, before you look at chapter, five, chapter 6, look at the end of chapter 5. And there was rest in the land for 40 years. 40 years, that's an extended rest. 40 years, that's a generation. So as we walk our way through the sixth chapter, as we look at the story of Gideon, it's apparent he's a younger man. There's been rest for 40 years. So, All that Gideon has ever known is a time of rest. He hadn't grown up in a land of oppression. Add to that, he's apparently from a very prominent family, a wealthy family. Now, I know later on he's going to say, no, wait a minute, who who am I to deliver? I'm, I'm from the the weakest clan of Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. But think about it. He took two of his father's bulls, implied in that would be he has a lot more than that. And when he went down to to pull the altar down and to build an altar and sacrifice that bull, he took ten of his servants. That implies a wealthy family, a prominent family. Add to that the idol Baal and his altar was on their property. So his father was a prosperous and important man in the community. So, yeah, he's living in a land that is now oppressed, but he's living the good life in that he's a member of a wealthy family. He was born in good times, but times have changed. Even after 40 years of rest, the pool of Canaan's just too much, and so Israel's reverted to her old ways. The dark shadow of apostasy again covers the land. At best, there's a syncretized religion, a blending of the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal. And as a result, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east are a desert people. And they occupied the marginal lands to the east and to the south of Israel. Old animosity smoldered in the background. Israel and the Amalekites were ancient enemies. We know that from Exodus chapter 17. There had been trouble between Israel and Midian during the days of Moses. Numbers 25 and 31 make that clear. But this enemy is a little bit different. This enemy doesn't come in, conquer, settle the territory and take over. They come on raids. They come to raid and to pillage and so they would wait till the crops were ripe and then they would come and sweep in like locusts and destroy everything and carry off oxen and sheep and donkeys and leave the people without food or any means to produce food. 
And as a result, Israel is forced to live like animals in the caves and the strongholds around. These were dark and difficult days. The carefree days are gone. Under such conditions, it was every man for himself. No wonder the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for deliverance. They had been brought very low. You see the cycle? They did, is, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They, they fell into apostasy. They turned away from God and turned to other gods. And as a result, God brought judgment. Things got so bad that they were living in caves and, and fearing for their lives. And they cried out to God. So what comes next? We've seen the pattern. Here comes the deliverer, right? Now we have a change in the story. There's apostasy. God brings judgment. The people in their misery cry out to the Lord and he sends a prophet. Now I'm sorry, but when I read that, that kind of to me reads like, help, I'm drowning. Oh, you're drowning? Here's an anchor. They sent a prophet? And especially when you look at the message that the prophet brought. Now, what's happened? They're very low. They're greatly oppressed. They're living like animals. They're miserable. They're crying out to the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I led you up out of Egypt and I brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you. And drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear. You shall not worship, you shall not bow down to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Pastor, you you titled this section about God's gracious rebuke. Yes, this is a gracious rebuke of rebellious faith because he's reminding them of what their real problem is. He's telling them what the real issue is. God in love and mercy is saying to this wicked, rebellious people who are doing evil in His sight, listen, your problem is not with Midian. Your problem is not with the Amalekites. Your problem isn't with the people of the East. Your problem is with me. You have abandoned me. You have disobeyed my command. Your real problem is with me. That's mercy. That's grace. It's the same message that we got back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and the people responded there with repentance. It's a gracious thing to be reminded that understanding God's way of holiness is more important than the absence of pain. God loves us too much to allow us to continue in a path of rebellion that leads to destruction. This is a loving call to repentance. The goal is to heal, not to harm. The goal is to restore and not to destroy. At times you may feel like the the message of God to you is a harsh 
an inappropriate response. But he doesn't make mistakes. He's working in you for eternity. He is seeking to work in you for an eternal joy. The prophet comes telling them that what is, what is it really at stake and the cause of their suffering. That's an act of love. That is grace and mercy in action. You and I talk about being saved. We, we will even ask people, are you saved? What do we mean by that? What, what, do you be, what are we being saved from? Oh, we're being saved from our sin. No. Well, we're, we're, we're being saved from hell. No. We're being saved from God. Because the wrath of God abides on the ungodly. It's a loving thing to tell us what our real problem is. It is a gracious thing to stop us and say, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're worried about the wrong issue. God's response to a rebellious faith is to lovingly rebuke it. and To point out reality, to point out the truth, to point us to Christ and the gospel. Second thing, the Lord lovingly reassures an uncertain faith. You hear this word from the prophet and you think, oh boy, they thought it was bad. Now he's going to lower the boom on this bunch of knuckleheads. He's setting them up because he's going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. And what's the next thing we read? The Lord raises up a Savior. His grace and mercy. Gideon's out minding his own business, threshing out the wheat in the wine press. He's doing it in the wine press because he's hiding from the marauders. They see him threshing the wheat. They're going to come and take it. So he's in, in hiding doing this. And as he's doing that, he gets the sense somebody's watching. Because an angel's come along and he's sat down under a tree just staring at him, watching. And he gets the sense of that. And finally the angel says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response is, Seriously? Really? Now, you need to read Gideon's response with a lot of sarcasm and a pinch of bitterness. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And by the way, we're all these wondrous deeds that our fathers keep telling us about. Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Let me paraphrase that. Well, if this is life when the Lord is with you, I'd hate for him to be against us. By the way, I don't see any of these great things our parents keep talking about, my grandparents, about how wonderful it used to be back when the Lord did all these things for us. The Lord has forsaken us. Paraphrase. Go sell crazy somewhere else, buddy. I'm not buying. That's Gideon's response to the angel of the Lord. 
Now, we know that the Lord has not forsaken them. Israel has forsaken the Lord. They've gone whoring after other gods. They've gone giving themselves to those which are not gods at all. Look at the Lord's response. Go in this might of yours and save Israel. Gideon responds with more sarcasm. Okay, I'm the, I'm the last guy to lead this charge because I'm from the weakest clan of the smallest tribe and I'm the least in my father's house. I'm a runt's runt. I'm a nobody from nowhere. And the Lord says, I will be with you. That's really all he needed to know. That's all the backing he should have needed to do the thing God called him to do. But Gideon asked for a sign. I get that. I understand that. Gideon's uncertainty is met with God's reassurance. God said, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. He said, well, wait here until I come back with my gift. He said, fine, go get your gift. I'll be here. So he goes and he makes the, he roasts the lamb and he, Bakes the bread and he brings the broth and everything back out. And the angel says, well, put it all on that rock right there. And he does so and then he steps back and the angel takes his staff and he touches it. And poof, fire, it's gone and then the angel's gone. I think that's a pretty impressive sign. So what did that do for him? What did this, what's the result of the sign? Is Gideon comforted? Is Gideon strengthened? He's scared to death. He's terrified. Because he perceived, bright boy, he perceived he has seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And he thinks that's a death sentence. He expected to die. And the Lord encouraged him, no, you're, you're not going to die, you're going to live the point is, the Lord is long-suffering and patient with us. He's gracious and merciful beyond what you or I would ever be. But don't buy that lie that says the God of the Old Testament is consumed with wrath and judgment. He is a gracious, merciful, loving God, drawing His children to Himself. Even His hesitant, uncertain children. Brings us to the last thing. The Lord mercifully reinforces and reaffirms a frightened and cautious faith. Gideon thinking, wow, this is great. I'm not going to die. I'm going to survive this. But he really doesn't get a chance to savor that because the Lord speaks to him again immediately. He says, oh, by the way, you're going to deliver Israel from the hand of Midian but first, you need to do a little work closer to home. You need to deal with Israel before we deal with Midian. So I want you to go and tear down your father's altar to Baal. Cut down the Asherah. Build an altar for me in that place. And then take one of his prized bulls and sacrifice it to me. Okay, you mean right now? And Gideon does it. But because he's afraid of his father, because he's afraid of the town people, he did it at night. 
and took ten of the servants and went and did exactly what the Lord told him to do. And his hesitancy was well-founded because the next morning, when the town people found out what happened, they're furious. And so they did some investigation. They found out, oh, Gideon did this. And so they go to Joash and they demand, bring out your boy. We're going to kill him. How dare he tear down the altar of Baal, cut down the Asherah. We demand his blood. I don't know what happened in the heart of his father, who obviously has allowed this to go on. He's, it's on his property. He probably was the priest that offered the, the sacrifices to Baal. But all of a sudden he said, now wait a minute. Why are you contending for Baal? If any of you try to, you'll be dead by morning. If Baal is God, then let him defend himself. If Baal is really God, then let him take care of it. It was his altar that was cut down. So Gideon's given a new name. The one who contends with Baal. Gideon's got to be encouraged. He's got to be a little hopeful. But then look at what the Lord does. And then the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord enclothed him, empowered him, and he sounds the trumpet, and here come the troops. The Abiezrites show up, and then Asher and Neptali, Zebulun, and the others, they all come to his aid. And you think, there we have it. Now we have it. The people have cried out. The Lord has raised up a deliverer. The Lord has empowered him. The Lord has strengthened him. Now this is the stuff legends is made of. Here this powerful man, clothed by the Spirit of God, is going to lead this great mighty army. And he stops and says, uh, one more thing. I'd like a sign. Seriously? You need a sign? How many do you have to have? He was already given the sign. If it's you speaking to me, then prove it. He proved it. You, were, you knew it was him. You were, you were afraid you were going to die. You need another sign. He clothed you with the Spirit. You've been empowered. You need another sign? So he says, I, here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to put out a fleece. And in the morning, if that fleece is, is wet, if it's soaked with water, but the ground all around is dry, then I'll really know you're in this. This is often held up as a pious thing. It's held up as, I'm going to put out a fleece, as if, as if that's something noble. I we put out a fleece so we'll know the direction of God. Gideon wasn't seeking the direction of God. He'd already been told explicitly in clear words and clear terms. This is, at best, hesitancy. But I think it's rank unbelief. Do this thing. If, part of me is asking, what is this if? You already know without question, it is God who has spoken. And there's no question what he has said. So why are you saying if indeed you're going to do this? God graciously grants exactly what he asks. And then he says, okay, don't be angry. But let's do this one more time. And this time, let's do it the other way around. Let's. Let the fleece be dry. 
and the ground wet. I'm being honest. To me, this is a time for another one of those signs that goes, poo, fire, he's gone. But that isn't the way God responded. God, the holy, sovereign king of the universe, actually condescended to do what this unfaithful, unbelieving servant demanded. That's shocking. That's surprising. But it reveals the mercy in the heart of our God in his loving response to this hesitant, halting, unbelieving servant. The Lord did not lecture Gideon about his shallow and insufficient faith. He didn't scold him or condemn his inability to believe. He graciously granted his request. So Gideon is not a model for us of piety and a shining example of faith and courage. But then this story really isn't about Gideon. It's about the wonder, the glory, the majesty, and the grace of our God. It's about his surprising response to hesitant, halting faith. Where he graciously rebukes a rebellious faith. He lovingly reassures an uncertain faith. And he mercifully reinforces and reaffirms a frightened, cautious faith. That ought to bring us hope. Because we live in a troubled time, in a troubled world. Where we are constantly swimming upstream. We are constantly working against the culture. The culture is all moving in the other direction. And so sometimes to stand for the Lord and do the thing we know he's commanded us to do is hard. And we don't want to do it. I don't want to be the oddball. I don't want to be the one that's different. I want to, just, I want to go along. I want to get along. Sometimes it's hard to believe. Oh, be encouraged. Be encouraged that the grace and mercy of God is sufficient to meet your unbelief, to strengthen you, to enable you to do the thing He's called you to do. The gospel tells us that our God supplies our need. He's provided for our salvation. And then he's called us to a great work. But he doesn't just call us to that work and sit back. But he enables us to do the very thing he called us to do. Be encouraged. Does your faith sometimes falter? Do you sometimes stumble? Be encouraged. And trust in the same grace that brought you into the kingdom to begin with. Because it is His grace that saves you. It is His grace that will carry you on. And it will be His grace that takes you home. Be assured of the love and mercy and the grace of God. Even in the midst of your halting, hesitant faith. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the glory and the wonder of the gospel. I thank you for this example out of the pages of the Old Testament of another fallen son of Adam that you gloriously used to accomplish your purpose. 
And he's no shining example of faith undaunted. He's a frail child of dust. A fallen son of Adam who's stumbling along. And you were gracious and merciful and patient. Lord, may we be encouraged by that. May we find hope in that. And may we rest in your good work in us. That we can be confident that the one who began this work in us will bring it to completion. Father, drive this truth deep within our heart and soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the TBC Tulsa podcast, which features the preaching ministry of Pastor Rod Harris at Trinity Baptist Church, located at the corner of 41st and Union in Tulsa, Oklahoma. To learn more about Trinity Baptist Church, visit us on the web at www.tbctulsa.org.